0: Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Now, this week, we will be talking about how to go deeper in therapy to explore what it means to be you. We will also discuss why we can often feel like we're exaggerating what we tell our therapist or think that we're making up all that we've gone through. We will dig into childhood sexual abuse and why it can be comforting, why hearing about it can sometimes be arousing and all the things that can come along with that sort of trauma. I will explain the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder and when we should reach out for help. We will come up with ways to uphold boundaries with people who don't respect them and the effects of a near-death experience and what that can do to us. Let's get into those questions. Question number one says, Hi Katie, I'm in therapy for anxiety, self-esteem, and trauma. We talk about surface things like what happened that week and checking in with symptoms and other times we delve into past experience and we process that. However, sometimes I crave the chance to explore deeper sides of myself with my therapist. I want to be curious about other aspects of my psyche such as recurring dreams, nightmares, my feelings about marriage and children and the future, my phobias, my sexuality, etc. even when they aren't directly connected to my daily symptoms. The problem is my therapist will sort of reroute me if I try to talk about these off-topic things. But how could they be off-topic when they concern me and my mind? When I watch movies and TV shows where the character sees a therapist, especially long-term, and notice the character is allowed to wander freely with whatever their wherever their mind takes them, as long as they're exploring themselves, and I envy that so much. Do you let your clients do this, or do, they, do you feel like they are wasting session time? This is a beautiful question, and I have a couple of thoughts. Number one, your therapist is doing a good job trying to keep you on track, working towards your goals. Like when we put together treatment plans, I've talked about these before. Every therapist, I believe firmly, should have some sort of treatment plan with you and they should talk it through so that we ensure we're working towards the same goals. And I bring that up because your therapist keeps rerouting you back to what I assume is a treatment plan either she has in her head, maybe one that she's talked out with you, but either way she's like well these are the things we're going to work on i should pull you back so we stay focused all you have to do is to tell your therapist hey i want to explore these things like you you listed a whole bunch of things and i personally like that in my therapy too where i get to kind of explore like who i am and what i'm doing and why do i have these thoughts about x y or z and i want to be curious about this right that's just Natural. It's also incredibly healthy. And it's something that you should be able to work on in therapy. We just have to let your therapist know that that's a priority. Now, here's the kind of other side of that. If you have mentioned this to your therapist, hey, I want to process through these things. I want to talk about these things. And she keeps rerouting you. I would give her one more opportunity. I'd mention it again. Like when you feel like you're being rerouted, you can say that's one of those things I want to talk about. If she keeps persisting and pushing, then it might not be a good fit because that means that it's like her way or the highway, which is not how therapy should feel. Even in the process of putting together a treatment plan, we work with our patients to make sure that we are working on the goals that they actually want. We have identified the symptoms that are really uncomfortable. We are, you know, processing or being curious about the specific things they want to be curious about, right? As a therapist, it's not my job to tell you what you need to do. That's actually the opposite of being a therapist. My goal as a therapist is to listen to you about what you're struggling with and work with you to find ways to better manage it. It's essentially like you're, you have all the answers, you know where you want to go, and it's my job to help guide you in the most healthy way possible towards that. So that's really my advice. You wanting to do this is not wasting session time. If it's important to you, it's important, period. And so if these are things that you want to talk about, like recurring dreams and nightmares, you have to let her know. I, I'm, that's what I'm wondering is if you've talked to her about it before. Because I think, I mean, I feel this way that like everybody at one time or another, you know, craves to be able to explore deeper things. I, even my patients who deal with trauma, they're like, I just kind of want to take a break from that because this is what I'm worried about today. And that's fair. We should be able to do that. There should be space and time because at the end of the day, it's your therapy time and you get to spend it however you want, okay? Hang in there, keep me posted, and please just let her know. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a waste. She might just feel like, oh, you're just ta- you know, like talking off topic and doesn't realize its importance to you because I do have patients also, last thing. I do have patients who, when met with something that is difficult or uncomfortable to talk about, they will easily mm-hmm, divert us to something else, and I will bring it back, or they'll make a joke, and I'll say, I notice that you're, you know, making a joke. Is that something that you often do? I mean, I know people hate it when we call them out, but it's important to understand what our defense mechanisms are. And she might think that this is one of yours. So we have to be clear about that. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I hope you're having a good day. I wanted to ask you why I always feel like I'm over-exaggerating what I tell my therapist. I don't do this on purpose, but after my sessions I always get really angry at myself because I feel like I've made my therapist think that I'm worse than I actually am. Hmm. Sometimes my therapist tries putting labels on stuff, and when she does, I always have a hard time accepting the fact that I might be struggling. This makes me feel hopeless, and I dread going to my next session because I'm stuck in this endless loop of picking apart every word she says and then deciding that none of it's true and that it's my fault she believes I'm doing badly. But then sometimes I also genuinely really feel bad. I wanted to ask what could cause this feeling. Thank you so much for all you do. The podcast is the only thing I look forward to Oh, I'm glad I can be there for you. Now, I'm going to read the comment because it's pretty much the same and I want to just answer it all at once. There's a comment says, yes, I can relate. I just got done with my therapy appointment for this evening, which I was brave enough to somewhat mention something from my past without saying exactly what happened. I'm just not quite ready yet. Anyway, my therapist said, you mentioned when we first started seeing each other that you didn't have any trauma. Well, I never thought of my situation as trauma. But now, since she's mentioned it as trauma, it has me feeling, well, yucky inside. What gives? Great questions. Now, a couple of pieces here, especially because someone mentioned trauma, the person who asked that had like a follow-up. When there's trauma present, there is, I would say, almost with 100% certainty, but we'll just say 99% because everybody's different, right? But 99% of the time when we've experienced a trauma, we also experience shame. Shame, remember, is not embarrassment. It's not guilt. It's not uh, feeling bad about ourselves. Shame is, I think something's wrong with me. I'm somehow broken inside. And Shame is important to acknowledge and recognize because its role is to make us feel like we're the problem. Something's inherently wrong with us and no one can fix us. It causes hopelessness. It causes us to minimize and invalidate our experience because we think, well, I did something. So I created this trauma. I'm the reason this keeps happening. It's all my fault, right? And hence why shame hangs out with guilt and embarrassment and all that stuff. So. The fact that she called it a trauma, it can be really hard for us to acknowledge that what happened was actually that bad. So let's move into the first part of this question where the person asked about, like thinking that someone's feeling they're doing worse than they really are. With shame, with embarrassment, with guilt, with all the things that can come along with any kind of upset or trauma, in order to get through and survive, we often minimize and invalidate it so we can get through it. Yay, look at us, right? Right. But in that process, we tell ourselves that what happened wasn't really that bad, right? That minimization happens. And we start to not believe that what we actually went through or what we're experiencing is bad enough to maybe even warrant help or warrant care, any of, warrant taking up space. So that's a big piece of this, I think. But here's what I think may be where this first person's question is coming from, is it's possible, or I'd hypothesize that you have been told either overtly or not, meaning outwardly someone has said this to you or just through actions and behavior someone has expressed this to you, but you believe for one reason or another that you feeling bad and expressing that feeling is not okay. That could either be because growing up maybe you were told you were too sensitive or that you were too much or that you're always the drama queen or king or like, oh, it's just, you know, Katie doing that again. She's always like that. We were kind of made fun of or maybe neglected when it came to our emotional well-being. So when we get older and we have bad experiences and we feel bad or we're doing poorly, it our automatic response is to be like, no, it's not really that bad. We want to minimize it because it wasn't safe growing up to actually experience that and express it. And it can even feel really, really uncomfortable when someone, even like our therapist, tells us, you know, I'm so sorry. And like they hold space for us and they allow us to talk about it. We can be like, oh, like the other person said, it makes you feel yucky inside. We're not used to that. We're used to being minimized, invalidated, shut down, told that we can't take up space. We can't be there. We can't do this. We're too whatever sensitive over whatever. And that can leave us, you know, with a lot of feelings with nowhere to put them. And so, I really think those are, I know this is kind of like meandering, but I hope that some of that kind of gave you an idea of what could cause that feeling. The fact that it's like, you don't even know, you don't like people thinking that you're doing poorly, but even if they do, then it feels like it's not true. Again, because remember, so much of our life, I feel like this is a key thing to just remember. It's like a key learning from therapy. So much of our life, is predicated on past stories that we continue to tell ourselves. And the past story that you're telling yourself here is that doing poorly, having a hard day, having a hard life, struggling, whatever, is too much. It's not okay to express it. We don't want people feeling bad for us. That's a bad thing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, If. only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... right? We are alone have to deal with it. That's that old story. And that old story is not serving you anymore because now it's making it so that if they acknowledge that you're doing poorly, we feel like we're lying and that's not true. And if they don't, we feel hopeless and we feel left alone. And So there's got to be a middle ground in here where the, the story that we tell ourselves should shift from you're too much, you're too sensitive, you're whatever, to, you know what, everybody has bad days and I've had some rough stuff that I've been through. And therapy is the space that I can dump that and I can talk about it and I can get the support that I need, if that makes sense. But feel free to follow up. I know that that can be, that's kind of, like I said, I kind of meandered on the answer, but it's because it can come from a lot of different spaces. But I find in general, it's those stories that we've told, been told and we continue to tell ourselves. Those narratives that we live out of, interesting thing about them is someone else usually tells them to us first, right? Or they always someone always tells us them first. This can be, again, overtly, like they actually say something to us or we overhear them saying something about us or is through behaviors and actions and what was accepted or not, right? They tell us that story first and they might tell us repeatedly as we grow up. But then we take that story and we continue telling ourselves that story throughout our life. And that's where we can make the changes. We can stop telling ourselves that story. We can change and that's something to talk to your therapist about, because the way that we would alter this is to act in different ways and to challenge those automatic thoughts. What I mean by challenge is when you have that thought that like, I think she thinks I'm doing worse than I really am. I feel like she's exaggerating the bad things. I'm not doing that bad. Instead of accepting that and moving on, I want you to question that. I want you to say to yourself, have I been having a hard time? Like, did I lie to her about anything? I, I mean, I just told her what was going on. You check those facts. So then we checked our facts, and then we might need to say something to ourselves. Even if we don't believe it, we're going to bridge statement. We're going to say something to the effect of, you know, it's possible that that's coming from that old story. Katie could be right. I don't know if she is. I still think I'm exaggerating, but I'm open to maybe that, that being part of it. We're just moving in that direction. You got this. Okay. Moving right along to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. Is it normal to fantasize about your childhood sexual abuse to try to comfort or to find comfort in it? I feel like I'm trying to change the narrative to make it feel less traumatic. Great question. There's some follow-ups on here. I think there's like two or three. Um, Childhood sexual abuse, the important thing that I want to start this conversation off by saying is that when we're sexualized at a younger age than is appropriate, right? So it's childhood sexual abuse, and we're abused in the process. When that happens, we can struggle to understand physical intimacy. We can struggle to understand what a healthy relationship looks like. We can uh, be, and I don't know if this is the case with you, but some people are controlled with fear. And so we can feel like fear always has to play a role in all of our romantic relationships or intimate relationships. There can be a lot of connections that are being made because we have to remember that when we're a child, we don't think about sex or understand sex in the way an adult does. We can be curious about our bodies and curious about other people's bodies. That's normal development. But when we're sexualized from a young age, it can really alter the way that we engage with other people and the way we think about those types of dynamics. We can make connections that shouldn't be connected. Like I said, like fear is always part of a intimate relationship. So, when that happens, when this is introduced at a very young age, not only is that happening, those connections that shouldn't be made or being made, but we also can bond with our abuser. They're called trauma bonds. I have videos about them if you want to, you can just put trauma bond Katie Morton into YouTube and find it. But you can become attached to your care or to the person who's abusing you. I almost said caregiver. Sorry, that is not an abuser. You become attached to them because we hope that by kind of going along with it and being easy and caring for them and feeling like they are, they care for us, they might tell us they do, that we will not be harmed as much anymore. Or because we're going along with it, maybe we can tell ourselves that it actually is okay. We actually enjoy it. And it's actually something we want, even though we aren't of the age to even make that decision. And this bond, as hard as it is sometimes for other people to understand, can cause us to find comfort in it, to think back to that time. I have many patients and members of our community who are still very actively in love with their abuser, even though they understand it was wrong. Maybe they've grown up. It could have been years and years ago. But that connection and that bond that was formed through trauma as a way to protect ourselves, really, psychologically kind of makes sense, right? If I fight and go against it, it only feels worse Maybe if I'm really nice to them, it will feel better. It'll be okay. They won't hurt me as bad anymore. It's protective. We do that as a way to get through it. But it can be really hard because we don't know what a healthy relationship connection any of that is, right? Then that's a narrative. Those connections that shouldn't be made or be made. We don't really have any other example of this type of relationship. And so that relationship can feel like the the real thing, the quote unquote real thing and we can struggle to let go of it as we grow up. Does that make sense? I hope so. And so that's kind of the foundation with which I want to start this conversation, because that's why we can go back and fantasize about childhood abuse or childhood sexual abuse to find comfort in it, because it could have been the only person who gave us attention when we were a child, especially if our parents were neglectful or this was done by a parent, um, we can think that's what love really is. It can be very confusing and very convoluted in our in our brain in the way that we tried to process such trauma that we can find ourselves going back to it. Not to mention, and here's another key piece that I've, one of my patients, you know, had we come to this realization, so I want to share it with you, that when abuse happens, it can feel very intense. Very. Also, they can tell you it's a secret. There can be a lot of energy around it, for lack of a better term. And this energy makes it just really intense, really overwhelming, really scary, right? Everything's heightened. It's it's a trauma, so we're hypervigilant. We're in our stress response. And the intensity of that relationship can make us think that healthy relationships are boring, that people who don't want to harm us aren't any fun, or that if we find a person that we want to date romantically later or like oh there's not there's no fear in it or remember those connections that shouldn't have been made or um you know it's not a secret so it doesn't have that thrill to it or it doesn't feel wrong or i don't get that my stomach doesn't flip around i don't feel sick that's not it right and so having that really intense relationship so young very unhealthy abusive nasty relationship that's kind of all that we know. Again, that's kind of the story we tell ourselves. Well, that's what a relationship is. And we can go out into the world and it'd be really hard for us to find that same intensity because that intensity is not healthy. Therefore, we can go back to that. We can fantasize about it because it brings us comfort, because it gives us that hit that we're looking for. But I just want you to know that it is completely normal to have these fantasies and to go back to it for comfort. It's possibly the first love that we knew. It might be the only way that we got attention as a kid. There could be a lot of reasons for it. So don't think you're weird. Don't think anything's wrong with you. But as you work through it, that urge to do that will go away. Okay. There were comments on this. said, I hope your questions get answered. In a similar vein, what could cause someone to experience sexual arousal when thinking about self-hate, self-harm, or even self-compassion? Is that normal? How can it be overcome? Yes, this is normal. The interesting thing about Remember I talked about like fear and the intensity. When we have things that are emotionally intense, like self-hate, self-harm, we can become aroused because of that kind of intense experience. And I know that you're thinking like, well, that's really weird. Why would intense feelings make us aroused? It's There's some connection in your brain, either from an old story or old abuse that is happening. In some way, that the intensity of it is triggering that response. And it's usually coming from some other experience in which you, um, maybe let's say you had childhood sexual abuse in your life, and you hated yourself and hated that this was happening. And so that reminder of that feeling, that self-hate triggers arousal. Because even if it is abuse, even when someone's harming us and we don't want them to, our biology can cause us to be aroused even though, again, that doesn't mean we want it. It's like our body can betray us, right? But that isn't a, a mental choice for our body to be aroused. That is something, it's a physical component. It's a, a biological component to that. Okay, so I just want you to remember that. But my guess would be that this is happening because some of these, the self-hate, self-harm, or even self-compassion is linked in some way to a past sexual abuse, sexual assault experience. And as you process that through, as you talk about it, whether, again, that means talk therapy, EMDR, whatever type of therapy, that will slowly go down. And I know it's embarrassing and uncomfortable to talk about, but I encourage you to let your therapist know as soon as you feel able, because that gives us an idea of what you were experiencing when the abuse or assault was happening. And that gives us a, a, pa- a path to recovery, if that makes sense. Okay? Okay. Now, someone says, adding on, as an 11 or 12-year-old, I would fantasize about sexual assault when masturbating. I felt disgusted and ashamed about it and was relieved when the behavior went away when I developed self-harm and anorexia, other ways of coping. Look at that. I do have spotty memories and distressing flashbacks of childhood sexual abuse, which I'm trying to address in therapy, but it's too overwhelming. Could those fantasies and behaviors be related? 100% yes. Or are they normal for an 11-year-old? No. No. I don't like to call things normal or not normal, because even your response to the abuse is a normal response. But a 11 or 12-year-old who hasn't had a sexual abuse in their past would not fantasize about that. Since those memories have come up, I also feel the urge to hurt myself in that way. It's a normal response. Um, there is something there, and I believe that it's related to your To the trauma and to the childhood sexual abuse that you're kind of recalling slowly but surely. Be patient with yourself, what you're going through, and these fantasies, and even the experiences, the urge to hurt yourself, all of that is part of it. And also, I'm not surprised, you know, when you develop self harm and anorexia, that that went away. What we're trying to do is soothe. Whenever we use a coping skill, this is kind of important, and I I think it's a full video that I should do, but whenever we use a coping skill, healthy or unhealthy, The goal of using it is to self-soothe. It's because we feel uncomfortable in some way or another, and we're trying our best to feel better. We can judge those things and be like, that's unhealthy or that's healthy, right? Self-harm and anorexia is not going to be that great for us. We can be like, that's an unhealthy coping skill. I don't say unhealthy as a judgment or to make you feel any shame, blame, or embarrassment for it. What you're doing is you're trying to self-soothe with the only tools that you have, and those tools are things that you can control yourself with. Because we can't control our world, everything feels very chaotic. We feel like maybe we don't have a voice. Someone's harming us. We can't do anything to get out of it. Ah, what do we do? We control ourselves, and we do that through food, exercise, self-injury, masturbation. There's all sorts of over-shopping. Depending on our age, there's a lot of things that we can do: drugs or alcohol. We do all those things, even though people are like, "Why would you do those? Those aren't." We don't have any tools in our toolbox. We look in there. We're like, "Well, shit, it's like a broken rubber band." and an old Tootsie Pop, that's not going to help me. And so we don't have any tools, so we use what we can. So give yourself a little compassion, pat yourself on the back. Thank you to your self-harm and your anorexia and your masturbation for getting you through, for allowing you to survive. But now mm, they're getting in the way, they make us uncomfortable. We don't want to do those things anymore. And that's the first step in recovery. And you can get there one little step at a time. And it's not going to be linear. We're going to go forward, we're going to go back. That doesn't mean you're not making progress, but hang in there it does get better. Okay. We have another comment on this says, hi, Katie. As an add on, I want to ask an embarrassing question. I'm an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and I am in therapy. My question is, is it normal when hearing about sexual abuse on videos like yours or other videos, such as true crime podcasts, I feel a sexual arousal when the abuse is mentioned. I feel so horribly guilty about when this happens. I hate it with a passion. I detest and abhor the very notion of any kind of abuse, which is why this is so terribly upsetting, not to mention upsetting to me or for me. I try to tell myself that perhaps it is some kind of body memory. It definitely could be. Could this be what's happening? Yes. Like I said, I'm mortified when this happens. In my mind, as I hear those stories of others' abuse, I feel so much empathy and react appropriately with horror and sadness and sadness but the physical response in my private parts is at a complete odds with how I emotionally feel. Can you please help me and tell me I'm not alone in this? I feel so ashamed and confused. You are definitely not alone. I hope I've kind of opened with that too in the other questions, That that connection has nothing to do with how you feel and how you think about it. That connection, like you said, is a body memory. It has to do with your experience, and it's a biological response. It's not something that you're connecting and causing, if that makes sense it's because harm was done to you. And when you hear about those things, you're reminded of it. That's a body memory. And I know it's super uncomfortable and I am so sorry. I know it's going to be hard to talk about, but I encourage you to. It's, you're not weird. You're not creepy. Nothing's wrong with you. This is your body telling you, hey, when I remember a story like that, and that happened to us, this is what it felt like. And I know it can feel yucky we can detest it. We can hate it. We want to like almost jump out of our skin. But I encourage you, and this might be helpful, to try some somatic work, body memories. There's also "The Body Keeps the Score" is a great book um, by Bessel van der Kolk. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. It's a great book, and I encourage you to to check out that book and also some somatic experiencing. There's workbooks, and um, I'm gonna I'll probably put together a workshop on somatic experiencing soon. I just you know, we have the communication one and then we're, I'm doing a resilience one, but we'll get to it. Um, but when you feel that it's, if it's helpful, it might try to do a full body shake. Might want to go for a walk, move your body in some kind of way. See if it releases that. It might work. It might not. There are some other things that, you know, if you work with the actual therapist who does somatic experiencing, they probably have more tools. I don't specialize in it. So, you know, I'm limited in my understanding but there could be some things that you could do to help move that through so it doesn't feel so localized and so uncomfortable for so long. Okay? Hang in there. You're not weird. It's very normal. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hi, Katie. I hope you're having a great day. I am. I hope you're having a great day. It says, Just wondering, what's the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder? And when is it serious enough to ask for help? Great question. I've been having some problems with restricting and purging when I do eat more than once a day but I don't feel like it's bad enough because it's not like I can go several days without eating. It's just hard to think that I deserve help because others have it way worse. Okay, first things first, I want everybody to hear this. Just because someone else in the world could possibly have something worse does not take away from your right slash ability to reach out for help and get that help. Okay, I want to say that again, because I want you to hear it. Just because someone else could have had or does have what we're going through in a worse kind of way, that doesn't mean that our problem is any less or that it means that we don't have a right to get help and take up space as well. Unfortunately, there's enough pain and upset and issues to go around. It's not like pie. You taking a slice from it doesn't take it from anybody else. You can have it bad and someone else can have it worse and you both are deserving of care. Okay, I want to get that out there. Okay, back to your question. The difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. In my mind, it's not much. Let me preface this by saying the only reason you'd have a quote-unquote eating disorder is because it's diagnosable, meaning it meets a specific kind of criteria through the DSM or the ICD-11. Are we in the ICD-12 now? Either way, the ICD or the DSM. It doesn't matter. Um, That would just be criteria that's being met. From my perspective, as an eating disorder specialist, I believe that if you are spending most of your day thinking about food, whether that means watching what I call food porn, like the Food Network or food shows on TikTok or on Instagram, you follow a bunch of food accounts, it's food, 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 or exercise, exercise, exercise. If you're watching a lot of what I would call eating disorder-focused content, or even just thinking about food and exercise and stuff like that, if you're thinking about eating disorder content, for most of your day. So more than 50%. It's an eating disorder and it requires it's going to require some support and you that warrants you getting help. Now, the difference really between disordered eating and eating disorder is just like criteria being met. You could say someone has disordered eating when they don't quite meet the criteria for, you know, bulimia or anorexia or binge eating disorder or, you know, ARFID or any of the other things. However, you know, they they kind of white knuckle it and and function barely I would even argue that disordered eating would be part of what used to be called EDNOS, but now it's OSFED. So otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder, it's essentially the catch all when we don't quite meet that criteria for something else. And unfortunately, I think people assume that disordered eating is regular eating. Like I can't even tell you how many people in my life have disordered eating. Like we'll go out to eat as a group, and one person in that group will say something like, Oh, but I don't eat X, Y, or Z. And someone will say, Oh, are you allergic? And they're like, no, you know, I just prefer to eat things that are locally sourced or something. Or I, you know, just never allow myself to eat potatoes or whatever. And I'm like, "Mm." or they go to a potluck and they can't eat any of the food except for what they brought because they're so restricted on what they can and cannot eat. Now, I'm not saying people can't have preferences, but these preferences have nothing to do with like, I don't like the taste of X, Y, or Z. It's some unwritten rule that they have set out for themselves, meaning that they can't participate in social activities in a real way because they're so concerned about what is in something. If someone makes a dish and you have to ask them, non-allergy related, non-chronic uh, illness or disease related, if you have to ask them what's in it, because you're worried about what that might do to you or your body or your food and your eating and blah, blah, blah. That's disordered eating. That's an eating disorder. That's not healthy behavior. And we as a society have for some reason said that that's okay. And that that's like, quote unquote, normal, especially living in LA for so long, like all the number of people that would live their life like that. And I'm not saying, you know, you should binge eat. We're not swinging to another extreme. I'm saying that food shouldn't have any power over us. We should eat when we're hungry and stop when we're full. And it should be based around what we crave. Because like I've said a zillion times before, and I'll say it again, if we were forced to eat, a burger and fries every day for every meal. Probably by the second day, we'd be like, "Ugh, I don't want that." Or if we were forced to eat chocolate every day, all day. Well, if we were forced to eat a salad every day, all day. Ugh. our bodies are made to crave different things. Sometimes we crave crunchy salads. Sometimes we crave, you know, a cheeseburger. Sometimes we crave um, a ham sandwich. Sometimes we crave a soup. All sorts of different things because our body needs different nutrients listen to it. It has a lot to tell you. It's not the enemy. This faux sense of control is. So anyways, I know I went on a total tangent, but that's really the difference. And it is serious enough for you to ask for help. If if you are ever forcing yourself to purge or restricting your food, that's enough to reach out for help. The sooner we reach out, the better in general. And it is definitely bad enough for you to do that. Okay? I know it's hard and your eating disorder is always going to tell you, I'm not sick enough. It's not bad enough. But trust me when I tell you, it will never think that you are. So hear from me that, yes, it is bad enough. Yes, this warrants reaching out for help. Please speak up, reach out and get that support. Now, there was a comment on this and I'm curious about this too. I've always had a weird relationship with food, but I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. I don't stay in a behavior long and I'll switch between them all. Ooh, the chameleon of the eating disorder, very common. Restricting, binging, purging, and normal eating. Is this still considered an eating disorder? Yes. It would be part of that catch-all, that otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder, because co- eating disorders aren't about the food. I know it sounds like they are and, oh, we should want to lose weight. It's not about the fucking food. An eating disorder is about our f- sense of control and taking back it's a way to cope essentially if things feel out of control our eating disorder gives us that faux sense of control if we feel overwhelmed by our emotions hey overeating or undereating or numbing out with that makes it so we can't feel those overwhelming emotions it's a way for us to cope with other things going on so the fact that yours switches probably i would hypothesize has to do not only with the availability of the behaviors meaning if i have to go out i can't really restrict because other people are going to notice if i don't eat so i'll do this other behavior so availability or the emotions that we're trying to hide. I find a lot of my patients who do what you're doing, this kind of like chameleon type stuff, certain emotions trigger certain like behaviors. So feeling really sad might cause more binge behavior. Feeling really angry might cause more restriction or whatever. Um, And so you might do some personal research to figure out where those are coming from for you. And it says, um, it asks, how do I get more comfortable talking about this? I am very embarrassed about it. And when I hint about it in session, I immediately shut the topic down when my therapist tries to get for more information. What do I do? Start journaling about it. I don't care if it makes sense. Don't read it back. I just want you to start getting used to using those words. Write about it. Jot it down in a safe place where no one's going to get access to it, whether that means it's locked on your computer, whether that means you do it by hand because you you know no one's going to get into it. But let's start writing about it. And you can write about it in our community too. Even over on my Patreon account, we have a Discord server where you can talk about stuff like this too. Obviously, no triggering, no numbers, things like that. But you can talk about the urges and the thoughts and everything kind of comes along with it. But let's start writing about it. And then the second step would be to try to say it out loud to yourself. Like, can you pretend you're telling me? Talk it out. How would you say it? It might shut us down, but we're going to keep practicing. We're like building this little muscle as we get used to talking about it so that it starts to feel a little bit more comfortable. Is it ever going to feel comfortable? Probably not, but we'll get to a place where we can actually have the conversation without immediately shutting it down, okay? And give yourself some weeks, I know, weeks, to do that and to practice and try to journal about it as often as you can stomach, okay? Another person said, as an add-on, I'm in therapy for trauma and I recently noticed that I'm developing an eating disorder or disordered eating. I'm also not sure where to draw the line between the two, but I know, but if I know that my eating, eating behavior is related to my trauma, do I really have to bring the eating disorder up in therapy? Yes, you do. I remember you talking about coming to the root of the root in the process of healing from an eating disorder. So if I know the root, why am I struggling so much with eating and overeating? Because you're trying to cope. You're trying to self-soothe. Remember these unhealthy coping skills, we use them because it's all we've got and it feels better. Is it also sufficient to only talk about these root feelings related to my trauma without mentioning that it's all led up to an eating disorder? Maybe I don't have to mention disordered eating because when the root is treated, we'll work on the trauma and I'll be healed automatically on the way. Would be so thankful for any advice. While you are correct that the urge to use the eating disorder will go down as we work on the trauma, we still have to acknowledge the eating disorder and tackle those symptoms at the same time. I know it's uncomfortable. I wish things were automatically processed as we did something else and they do get better, but we're going to need specific tools to help us with the symptoms we're experiencing today. Yes, we have to treat the root, but that doesn't mean that we also like, think of it as like a weed in your garden, right? We want to kill it at the root, but we also have to pull it out from the top to get rid of it, right? And we can do both things. And if let's say it's a vine and it's growing up the wall of your home, you're going to have to cut it off. And that's treating those eating disorder symptoms, right? We don't want it to get more pervasive. We don't want it to invade other parts of our life and get more intense. We have to treat it as well. I know it's uncomfortable, but it's also important for your therapist to understand that this has led to that, that the trauma has led to this eating disorder behavior. Because I'll also tell you this, that if we don't acknowledge the eating disorder and work on it simultaneously, self-harm can pop up. Uh, drug and alcohol use, overspending, shopping, gambling, um, sex addiction. We can use all sorts of things to try to cope over exercise, which can be part of an eating disorder, but sometimes people don't think of it that way. Other coping skills can be triggered because we never actually worked through that to come up with other ways to cope again we can work on the trauma and that's really the root you are correct it is the root of the root however we still need to have other ways to cope and the eating disorder tells your therapist that you don't have enough of those healthy coping skills and we need to work on that okay Moving on to question five, it says, how can you set boundaries for people who cross boundaries all the time? Great question. Especially if it's a parent that you're struggling with. Luckily, I don't live at home anymore, but quitting the relationship or contact completely isn't an option. I don't want that. Another question is, how can you not let negativity ruin your mood when dealing with people who are always negative? Thanks for all you do, Katie. So The dealing with the negativity and not letting it ruin our mood will come along with the boundaries. And here is my advice. When we set boundaries, we often think we're telling other people how to act. We can do that. And that can be part of boundary placing, but that's just a request. Remember, we cannot control what other people do. We can't make people treat us better. We can't make people want to get better. We can't do any of that. Can't make people get into therapy. No matter how hard we try, we cannot make other people do anything they don't want to do. So a boundary is what we're going to do because who can we control ourselves? So if you have someone who crosses your boundary all the time, that means that then you need to do the boundary thing. So let's say I tell someone, you know, I don't want you uh, talking to me that way anymore. Let's say they use really abusive language, you know, mom or dad or whatever. Don't You can't talk to me that way. If you do, I'm going to leave or I'm not going to see you as often. I'm not saying that we're going no contact. I'm just saying that has there has to be a boundary. So then when they do that, and when they're negative and they talk shit, what do we do? We leave. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going against your family dance. You've probably been doing this for a really long time, and your parents or whoever it is that's acting like this thinks that they can get away with it because they always have. And they might have a reaction to you leaving. But that's not your problem. We can't control them. If they say, well, what are you going for? Whatever you can say. I told you, you know, being talked to like this is just hard for me and I'm going to have to leave. I told you if you kept talking like that, I was going to have to leave. So I'm going to leave. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Boom, we leave. And you have to hold your guns. That's the boundary. I leave. I hang up. I don't see you as often. Again, it doesn't mean that you have to quit the relationship or go no contact. But we do have to uphold the boundary because they can cross them as much as they want we can't control them but we can uphold it on our end that's actually the boundary itself okay and that will prevent the negativity from getting to you as you get better at the beginning it won't it's going to be really hard you're going against the grain you're doing something maybe you've never done before but as you get better and better at it we will feel a little bit more distance healthy distance not not talking to distance but a healthy separation between us and them. Families can be enmeshed and that can mean that their experiences are experienced and that's probably why their negativity is seeping into you. Also why the boundaries are so hard. And so as you get better at placing and upholding these boundaries, you have that safe space or that healthy space between you and them so that you recognize, hey, that's their response and I don't have to put up with it. I can actually emotionally distance myself in, the, in that moment. But it's going to take practice. Hang in there. It's uncomfortable, but you're worth it and it does get better. There was a comment on this. that said, I'm going through the same thing. My mom is so negative when I tell her about an apartment I applied for. I live in a shelter and I have a voucher for an apartment and I have to call her every day so she knows that I'm okay. How do I deal with the negative talk? Boundaries. The fact that you even said you have to call her every day, I just have to ask you, do you want to? Is it good for you? Maybe when she starts talking negative and saying shit, We say, you know, mom, it's hard for me to hear this. I'm already dealing with enough. I'm going to have to hang up if you keep talking like that. She might go, I can't believe you say that. We hang up, go, I love you. Click. Hanging up, removing ourselves from a situation doesn't have to be done in hate or anger. It can be done with love. I love you. This just, it's going to get to me. You're holding your boundary. You're protecting yourself. You can't, you're going through a lot. You finally got a a voucher for an apartment. Yay, because you live in a shelter. We need to get you out of there. She should be excited. And if she can't, and if she can only be negative, then we're going to have to cut her off before she gets into that space. We can probably feel it coming. We can sense that negativity. We can end the conversation. I know it's hard. We're going against what our norm is in our family. It's going to feel really uncomfortable, but hang in there because it does get better. Okay. We do have to clearly communicate though. We cannot just cut people off. That can damage the relationship. If we're not wanting to go no contact or not wanting to end that relationship, we're going to have to say, hey, when you do this, it doesn't feel good for me. Keep it about yourself. I feel this way, not you, you, you. But when you talk to me that way, it's really hard and it's it's feels super negative to me. And so I just can't, I'm going to have to hang up, mom, if you talk like that. I love you, but I'm going to have to hang up. I, I can't have that in my head right now. I'm having a hard time. And then as she... Okay, I love you. I'm going to hang up. Okay, I love you. Click. Believe me when I tell you that the dynamic of the relationship will slowly shift. There will be resistance and potentially aggression or anger up front, but it will give in. We just have to be consistent. That's the key. Okay. Final question. Question number six says, Hi, Katie. I've asked this question a number of times. Today's your lucky day. And so I really hope this gets picked. I was wondering if anyone has ever told you that they had a near-death experience or an NDE. If they have, how do you rea- how did you react? What did you say? Or if not, how do you think you would react? I had mine last year as a re- as a result of nearly dying and in a month and a month in a coma. How scary! From a severe and enduring anorexia nervosa, I have nobody who understands it in my life. It's hard to talk about it because nobody else knows. Nobody else I know has experienced it. I really wanted your thoughts on how how you would react or did react or whether you believe them. It changed my life in a way And I feel so alone Thanks Katie I'm so sorry you feel alone Yes I've had people I've had actually friends And uh, patients of mine Have near death experiences One of my girlfriends uh, After her second birth Of her her second child was born She hemorrhaged and almost died And it was so traumatizing Um, And I've had uh, a few patients of mine Have especially medical trauma in general But I had a patient Who was in a car accident And um, was left in the hospital For like a month to try to heal. And they were in a a medically induced coma for a couple of weeks to the swelling on their brain. Anyways, um, I react with empathy, understanding, sensitivity, and support. I know with eating disorders, people cannot understand and then they can react poorly. We have to be able to talk about it and be up for educating people sometimes. And I know that sucks. I'm not saying, oh, it's your responsibility to educate people. It's really not. But if you're wanting that support and it's you want it from that person and they don't seem to understand, we can choose to educate them a little bit. But that's really scary. I'm so sorry. Um, that's really how I react. I, I I, empathize. I seek to understand. In your case, I'd want to know what led up to it because it's the eating disorder therapist in me. But with my friends, I just let them vent and I talk about it as much as they want to or not. Like my best friend who went through that, I talked with her about it for months it was terrifying. And then she even called me months later when her husband was like, I want to have another kid. And she was like, I can't, I, I can't. And we talked about like, would she want to do surrogacy or, you know, how much is that? Well, you know, I didn't want her to feel pressured. It was super scary and traumatizing. Why go back into that, right? So just with compassion and understanding. And then I don't pretend. One thing that I, I do, I've gotten better. I shouldn't say I pride myself on it because I used to not be good at this when I was younger but maybe being a therapist and maybe just being an adult, I don't know, maybe it's a combination of the two. I've gotten better at not assuming I know how people feel and not placing that into the room, letting them tell me and just listening. And I think that's really healing. And that allows people to not feel alone, right? I can hold the space. I can have you tell me what that experience was like, and I can acknowledge you and I can sit with you and and you can be reminded that it's not too much and that you're not crazy and that it's all okay. So that's how I would react. That's what I've said. That's, I'm sorry you went through that. And I hate that even people that I've known in my life have gone through it. It's terrible and terrifying and it's a trauma um, and it needs to be treated as such. So I hope that lets you know you're not alone. I hope that lets you know that you can reach out to people and people who are loving and caring will be there for you. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. If you're new and you're watching this, I am still, I don't know if I'll switch this over. I'll keep you posted. But for right now, I ask for the questions every week on Sundays over on my podcast channel. I know I'm releasing the podcast now on my Katie Morton channel. A lot of you had requested that because toggling between the two, you'd forget and you'd miss a notification. So they're all in the same place right now. But over on the Opinions That Don't Matter podcast channel in the community tab on Sundays is where I ask for the questions. If you have a burning question, feel free to pop it in there. I love you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your week do your homework, and I'll see you next time. Bye. All done, honey.